0: Business world made understandable with intelligence uh, coming from our guest today, Arun Pai, Chief Strategy Officer at Flow, breaking down the headlines for us. Big short investor Michael Barry and other hedge funds have bet against Kathy Woods. Woods, in response, has fired back at Michael Barry, saying he doesn't understand the innovation space at all. Next, we'll move to the Poly Network Heist, the largest heist and uh, the biggest one so far in the short history of DeFi, what does it mean for DeFi's future? In case you're wondering what is DeFi, we'll have a little primer for you coming your way in just a while. Meanwhile, the crypto platform Poly Network uh, has asked a hacker to become its chief security advisor. Not bad for a day of hacking, right? I mean that and $600 million in his pocket which he's returned most of, apparently. Then we'll turn our attention to Beijing, tightening its grip on ByteDance with a rare China board seat. Now, what does this mean? How have markets reacted to uh, China's government seemingly tightening its uh, hold over ByteDance and, of course, its key domestic subsidiaries uh, in turn, right? TikTok, Douyin, Tor as well. And then we'll take a look at Palantir buying $50 million in... Gold bars. Why is a data analytics software maker growing its pile of this non-traditional asset? All those questions being put to Arun Pai, Chief Strategy Officer at Flow. But first, how are you this morning? Good morning, Arun. Good morning, Michelle. I'm very good. How are you? I am doing really well. Now, I know you're a reader. Before we get to Michael Burry and Kathy Woods and and your thoughts on the whole back and forth, have you read The Big Short? Or did you watch the movie? Isn't it a great book by Michael Lewis?
1: it is indeed Michael Lewis
0: is a fantastic writer he really is I, he really is alright so Michael Burry and Kathy Woods been going back and forth all about the ARC Innovation ETF Burry's called out Woods Fundamentals uh, and he's put his money where his mouth is uh, he's actually bought according to regulatory filing some 2,355 put contracts against Kathy Woods ETF during the second quarter he's held them through the end of the period but actually nobody really knows where he still has them. Uh, last week, so uh, well, before we go on to last week, um, I have to ask by asking whose argument seems stronger to you, Barry's point of view about valuations uh, or Wood's point of view that Barry may understand uh, the subprime space really well, but she doesn't believe he understands the fundamentals behind the explosive growth and the investment opportunities in the innovation space. We are waiting with bated breath, whose argument seems stronger to you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I probably am in the Michael Burry's camp, but I probably would not do what he's doing, uh, <laughs> just given the nature of the structure, of, but we'll go into that in more details, I'm sure. Okay,
0: so um, you're backing Burry uh, because... He's called the subprime crisis because, tell us That's, why.
1: I think if you, you know, I mean, the big short and obviously the movie is like really uh, interesting to watch as uh, spectators. But I think like I've actually gone through his uh, investor letters and his report, and I just love the way he analyzes and breaks down be it complicated or relatively straightforward aspects of the financial market. And so I'm like putting aside, you know, just the global financial crisis part. Just Michael Burry as an individual Mm. is extremely brilliant, right? There's no two ways about that. Mm, mm, mm. I think the fundamental and the reason why I started off saying, you know, and this is why I do agree with him, because personally, I do feel that valuations in the tech space in many of the tech companies are completely out of whack. The big problem that I have with doing options is something that I suffered through with Tesla, is that the way he went about making those billions of dollars during the global financial crisis is through a very specific credit default swap structure, right? The way that works is you sign a contract with an investment bank for, say, a period of anywhere from, like, 10 years up to 30 years. You pay a small amount of insurance premium, which back then, pre-crisis, the used to be as small as, like, 50 basis points or 0.5% or 1% per year. So say, for example, you're buying protection on a million dollars worth of underlying bonds, then the amount you're paying out every year is only $10,000.
0: Where
1: the risk reward is you're paying $10,000, you know, be it on a semi-annual, quarterly or annual basis, if the underlying bonds default, you get paid out the entire 1 million. So there's huge amounts of leverage that goes into a cds that's completely different from shorting and this is something that michael burry himself found out when he was short tesla too right he was short the underlying stock stock went up like three times he kept his position to some extent or got out of the position completely and switched into options like he purchased put options now purchasing put options uh in tesla you still get like further long dated options right which means the tenor the ability for the holder of that put to be able to monetize the position in case the stock drops that tenor can go up to like say five years or something in the case of tesla in the case of Woods arc etf i'm not exactly sure but given that it's a relatively new etf the longest term tenor and how liquid that tenor is for him to be able to deploy hundreds of millions or even tens of millions of dollars is relatively uh, more difficult. So then you're playing on not just you being right in the market, you also have to time the market to perfection, which was very different from GFC.
0: And that's what he's doing here? So, I mean, right now what we know is, uh, you know, they're put options uh, according to regulatory filings, but we, we don't quite know whether he still has these options or whether you sold them. So
1: probably, you know, just given the nature of his, investing It's not like he'll buy a put option one day, tweet the next day, and then try and get out of the position the day after that, right? Like, that's not his investing style. So I I, I don't think he would have tried to, uh, you know, get out of these put options. Uh I think the bigger question is, what is the tenor of the put option? And what is the strike price of the put option? That's how we'll know
0: whether his position is profitable,
1: right? That is exactly right. Mm. And, you know, just given the regulatory uh, way of uh, how large fund managers have to disclose their long or short position, mm-hmm. they do not need to disclose the tenor and strike of these puts. So, it, you know, you can say he's short like 2250 or whatever uh, put option contracts. That could be at a very, very low strike price, which means this capital outlay to purchase those puts is extremely small. So it actually doesn't make a difference, but it generates good headlines. I'm not saying that's exactly what's happened. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying that's a possibility.
0: Mm -hmm. And
1: again, right, like liquidity in the market for a fund of his size to be able to deploy those tens of millions of dollars is not as deep as it was, you know, back in the global financial crisis doing CDSs. That's the big difference.
0: Fascinating insight. Now, Burry isn't the only firm to short ARC's flagship fund. According to the filings, Lorian Capital Management, uh, roughly 171 million of put options they own against, uh, 1.3 million shares. Golden Tree Asset Management, more Capital Management, uh, Coromant Asset Management also hold large bearish positions. Just to put this in context, it's not just Burry versus Woods or Wood, I should say. All right. Uh, let's move on to the, um, Poly Network Heist. I am not sure if you came across this headline, but it has been fascinating us. We held quite an interesting discussion yesterday on it with two um, big honchos in in the crypto space who are, you know, fascinating to speak with because they're all about public information at this stage about what DeFi is and what the movement's all about. So basically for you, listener, Poly Network, um, you know, the heist, is the biggest DeFi hack of all time. $600 million is stolen from the network. One of the largest crypto heists, um, even more valuable than the Mount Gox he- heist, yeah, and it came as a surprise for many in the DeFi system. Uh, the hackers basically have returned most of the stolen funds into a multi-signature wallet, but they haven't given up their private keys yet to this particular. Wallet. So a lot is still, you know, we still don't know a lot about whether it's one hacker, a group of hackers, uh, whether he's given up the private keys and so whether all the funds have been returned. But what I want to ask you, Arun, is as an investor, does this strengthen or weaken your perceptions of um, the ability to trust the DeFi ecosystem?
1: I mean, to be honest, Michelle, I would like to think that it would weaken it, but the sad fact is this just generates a lot more attention to this space, right? Mm. And with that will come, you know, in this day and age of like social media and the way the Internet works or Google works, you click this link, there'll be all sorts of like retargeted marketing to the individual who's clicked that link showing you know how their poly network, how their DeFi uh, network is a lot stronger, hence to please invest into that. These are the kind of returns you can get, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So I think when it comes to things like these, the sad unintended consequence of even a heist as large as this is it's gonna create a lot more attention and then greed of the investor will kick in, not worrying about trying to actually understand what's going on in the underlying contracts so or the way the DeFi system is generating cash, Mm. but it'll just be, okay, you know what? I see these headline returns of 26% a year. Let me just plonk some money into it.
0: Absolutely. So that's the unintended consequence. So fascinating that it's going to bring even more attention to these decentralized finance startups, some of which um, offer incredible margins for monetizing, holding on to crypto, for example. Um, as an invent- yep. did you did you want to add? Uh, uh, no, it's really interesting, right? Like this, this concept of
1: DeFi is obviously fascinating, mm-hmm. right? Because why should banks be the only ones who are the gatekeeper to your assets? To some extent, it's been designed that way by governments across the globe to ensure that people's hard-earned money is kept secure, right? Like if you have... Uh, up to, I think it's $50,000 or something in Singapore, and give or take, I think $200,000 in the US, it's insured by the central bank. And the central bank in turn, uh, or the regulatory authority, in turn will ensure that the bank is so heavily regulated that your money is kind of kept safe, right? And sure, there are like scams and stuff involving DBS or other banks in Singapore where money has been taken out or something like that, but you are made whole by the system. In this case, the the system is other individuals. So there's no concept of a regulator kicking in, right? And that's exactly where it yields to potentially a lot of unscrupulous characters getting involved in this space because you can, uh, there are a lot of like get rich quick schemes that are out there. So I I know we've talked about this, you know, quite a bit in the past uh, couple of shows also. Once again, I just like to say those headline returns Sound really good in paper, but it's exactly just that, right? Like, and this is from the smartest people, like Mark Cuban, right? Mm. If I remember correctly, I think it was Iron Finance uh, token or the Iron Finance underlying DeFi, uh, the token called Titan went from whatever price it was, it just dropped to zero overnight. Oh yeah, like, that was
0: meant to be a stable
1: coin. That was a stable coin, right? Yeah. So, and and just imagine it just drops to zero, right? You lose your entire worth in that asset, Mm. which is fine for Mark Cuban when you're a billionaire and you invested, I don't know, maybe $5 million in this specific token, (laughs) very different for an individual investor. So is this space really interesting? Yes. Mm -hmm. Does the concept make sense? Mm -hmm. If done correctly? Absolutely. But, you know, banks have been existing for 200 plus years for a reason. Uh, it, 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 that is some cause to like trust the underlying system in many cases, and I believe one of them is this.
0: I hear your point there. Just to, for the counterpoint, the, this idea was DeFi is meant to be self-policing, and we saw it playing out in the Poly Network heist, where you see the hacker having to return the money in part because um, other miners, um, you know, blacklisted the address. Uh, apparently, where the hacker was originating from. And, you know, it's been framed. One narrative is he couldn't launder the money and therefore had to return the funds, given the transparency of the DeFi network. Uh, but what, what do you make of that argument, that this is a case in point of self-policing being a viable way that this um, network ecosystem can can move forward? That's interesting, but I don't know how you know,
1: eventually true, that will hold up because as far as I know, the latest report that I've read, he's returned most of the money, like four, not, not most, like 400 plus million, $200 million. And you're talking about like $200 million, right? Like it's a not lot of money. 200 bucks, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So $200 million, he just kept in a wallet without revealing the key uh, back to the exchange, yeah. so back to Poly Network. So, I mean, who's going to be, even if he's blacklisted, to some extent, he's kind of destroyed the underlying ecosystem, right? I mean, the concept is supposed to be security, not someone can run away with $600 million, gives back 400 but can still keep $200 million under lock and key. What? So tomorrow, if he's sick and tired of these other individuals in the network, he can say, okay, thank you very much. That's your $200 million gone, evaporated immediately, or it's like a deal with me. And then this whole thing about like $500,000 as uh, a reward money to which the guy, this quote unquote white hat uh, junior came out saying that, you know, this money is actually going to be for the other miners. So maybe your story is valid to some extent, but... Uh, I, I don't know that that actually generates trust in the underlying system. Though. Mm, That's the question.
0: Absolutely. And, and also the argument that hacks like these are ultimately good in the long run for DeFi as it will increase governance and scrutiny and improve the security posture of the networks. The big question is who's going to ensure the scrutiny, right? Again, is but, it the exchanges themselves or the miners?
1: That- That's exactly right. What do you mean by more regulation? Like, I mean, GFC happened, which was terrible and infected the livelihoods of billions of people across the world. And that led to extensive amounts of regulatory hearings uh, across governments and central banks and regulators, tightening the screws on banks on how much money they can hold as assets, how much they can lever up and provide that out as loans, etc. Over here, the underlying concept is that you'll be able to self-regulate. And, you know, just think back to, you know, 2006, human nature, right? Even in a, as regulated an industry as banking, letting people to self-regulate led to the GFC to a very large extent. Mm. In this case, it's impossible for any regulator or central bank to get involved just because of the nature of how it's been structured. Mm-hmm. So I just don't buy the argument that, uh, you know, complete self-regulation in this way will lead to an eventual, like, better financial uh, ecosystem stability.
0: Well said. Well said. All right, let's move on to Palantir. They're a data analytics software company and they bought 50 million US dollars in gold. Why is Palantir stashing away uh, its cash in this unconventional asset? Does it seem to indicate that a major black swan event, it expects a major black swan event on the horizon? It's,
1: kind of strange, this company, right? So it's got close to $2 billion. Firstly, on the balance sheet, it's got close to $2 billion worth of cash. So a very small amount of uh, you know, $50 million being invested into gold or anything else is not that big a deal. The question, though, is that I at least have is it's got the $2 billion of cash, not because of profitability. It's due to stock issuance in the public market And when the insiders have converted their stock options, they have to pay a certain amount of the underlying and then they receive the stock back in hand. So that's where the cash has been generated. To take that cash that's been given by external investors or insiders converting their stock options and putting that into gold, even a small amount of $50 million for a publicly traded company that is not a holding company, Like, you know, if, say, like a Berkshire Hathaway or someone does that, then sure, you know, like you bought into this stock because you trust management to be better capital allocators of your money than yourself. Right. That's why you're investing into there. Or that's why you invest into a fund. When you're investing into a publicly traded company that's an operating entity, Mm -hmm. it's the fiduciary responsibility of the board and senior management to look after the shareholders. So, you know, if that capital is extra capital lying around in the business, then, you know, typically dividends or stock buybacks are the things that make the most sense. In this case, it's a bit strange where, you know, gold is today. Apparently, crypto is being discussed internally, and that's going to go in tomorrow. Mm. Does it make senior management of a data analytics company smarter, to invest into gold or cryptocurrencies than anyone else i don't know but it's a bit of a question mark i think that more and more independent directors of boards across the globe have to start asking the active management in the company as to what the best use of funds are
0: Oh, absolutely fascinating that. Maybe they're seeing something in the data analytics that they're looking at every day. <laughs> well, <laughs> out of the curve there. Oh, who knows, the head-scratcher, but thanks for figu- uh, explaining that to us. All right, finally, we've talked about China and, you know, even Tencent warning of more regulatory headwinds uh, today. The Chinese government has taken a minority stake and a board seat in TikTok. Now, uh, do you read this as in China tightening its grip on tech and as an investment? Is this a deepening concern? Um, And are you seeing investors turning away from China? A deepening of that sentiment?
1: You know, to be honest, Michelle, until this news came out, Mm -hmm. I was actually quite pro all of these regulations and the way, maybe the extreme way the CCP went about enacting these regulations was a bit extreme, but I was quite, you know, a a big proponent of it. I, I thought it was, they were doing the right thing for the longer betterment, quote-unquote, of society the way they deem fit. But this headline kind of changed things around for me, and I'm a bit confused as to why. As a regulator, especially in a country like China that's more centrally controlled, you have access to all the information of pretty much any company – that exists over there, right? Like even financial institutions in Singapore, mm-hmm. MAS can literally walk in at any point of time and check what's happening in your books, et cetera. Mm. In China, obviously, the situation is a lot more extreme, right? Not just for financial companies, but for social media networks, etc. you name it, across the board. So with that amount of oversight and power that you already hold, was there a need to go beyond that and actually have an active board seat and to me, that's crossing the line a little bit from being the regulator with, you know, an, an iron fist standing outside to being inside and trying to enact changes in, in, in their own way. And I think that's something that's made me a lot more cautious. And I probably will now personally go into the camp of taking a step back and trying to analyze and see what the next steps of the government are going to be.
0: All right. We'll do that with you as well. As always, Arun, thank you so much for uh, helping us understand the business headlines. He's Chief Strategy Officer at Flow. Warren Buffett, uh, I, I, you know, there's a book out called Buffettology. When is Piology coming out?
1: <laughs> you'll be the first person to know and i hope you'll advertise it for me
0: michelle <laughs> fantastic i look forward to that as always he's our fine this is money and me before acting on the information on money fm please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives financial situation and risk tolerance to listen to more great interviews download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app that's a w e d i o